0: Today is March 11th, 2020, and my guest is philosopher and author Agnes Callard of the University of Chicago. She is the author of Aspiration, The Agency of Becoming. She's a regular columnist at the magazine The Point, and she is the winner, along with recent Econ Talk guest L.A. Paul, of the 2020 Leibowitz Prize for Philosophical Achievement and Contribution. Agnes, welcome to Econ Talk. Thanks. As in, I mentioned before in recent episodes, I'm We're recording this in the middle of the COVID-19 experience um, and pandemic, uh, so we're not able to use some of our usual equipment. Audio quality may not be what you are used to. Please bear with us. Let's get started. Uh, Agnes, the philosopher David Chalmers has a paper, Why Isn't There More Progress in Philosophy? The title implies that there isn't much much progress. Do you agree?
1: Um, I think that progress in philosophy just means something slightly different from progress in some other fields. And so if we're judging it by those standards, it will look as though there isn't much. Um, uh, I think um, I, I, I read that paper a while ago. I can't quite remember it. I think maybe maybe Chalmers's view is that there's something like um, kind of outsourcing of philosophy, like where, sorry, where in effect philosophy creates these ideas and then they go off into other fields to become progress. Um, So uh, and that that's once again saying like the 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 progress part is the extra philosophical part is the thing that happens when, um, you know, logic becomes a science of its own or moves over to math. Um, um, But I actually do think that there are some internal standards that we could use to think about progress in philosophy, Um, but they, they just might not be as useful for comparing it to other fields.
0: I think I think what he was looking at in there, and I think what people, whether foolishly or not, are looking for is uh, establishing truths, uh, having a better understanding of, say, the fundamental questions that humans grapple with. Do you think philosophy's made any progress on those things?
1: Well, so when. It- I think that thing I was saying about how there are these sort of external standards for progress, it's, they're still there in that phrase, establishing truth. So what we usually, what we mean by that in science is consensus, right? That like, there comes to be a kind of agreement between experts uh, in the field as to how things stand so that then you could speak to one of those experts if you were not yourself an expert and get like the lay of the land, like what, you know what are people in physics saying these days? There isn't that in philosophy. There isn't consensus building in philosophy. Um, and, um, but I think philosophers are engaged in the project of establishing truths. They uh, give arguments for claims, right? And so that's establishing a truth. Um, but you may think, well, it's not established if everyone doesn't agree, right? So that's, that's where you're employing that consensus standard for what it means for something to be established.
0: Well, that's interesting. I don't. I don't. Yeah, I think that's probably true. Although, of course, even in science, most truths get discarded after a while. Uh, some new truth comes along. It's the truth given the data that we have up to this point. Mm-hmm. It seems to me that's the wrong standard to apply to the human experience. Um, in particular, I think a philosophy. I feel really foolish saying this to a, a real philosopher, but with me. Um, I, I think the point of philosophy is to help us not answer questions, but how to think about questions. I don't think I think the, the the truth standard or the science standard is or the progress standard is is really the wrong standard. It's like saying, "Has human nature gotten have we have we gotten more uh, virtuous over the last three thousand years? The human being, not not me or you, but but humanity." And I'd say we haven't changed so much. To me, philosophy is the way that we think about the challenge of living a meaningful life, being virtuous, um, coming to grips with suffering, coming to grips with the complexity of our consciousness and how it interacts with our actions and thoughts. And I don't expect philosophy to answer those questions. I mean, I think it'd be absurd for philosophy to try to answer those questions other than to tell me that they can't be answered and then... Uh, To me, philosophy should, and I don't think it does this particularly, but I would like philosophy to speak in the voice that I can understand as someone alive in 2020 uh, so that I can do a better job coping with those questions, not answering them, but coping with them. What do you think?
1: So – I think you're right that philosophy shouldn't answer those questions, but that's not because they don't have answers or because there's no truth there. It's because philosophy can't do that for you. You have to answer those questions. That's what philosophy's been trying to tell you. <laughs> um, and so, I think one one really like deep difference between progress and philosophy and progress in science is that in some sense, progress in science is all about having less science to do. It's like we're trying to finish science, right? Yeah. And so the progress means we've tied those loose ends. And we may, it may turn out we didn't tie them as well as we thought we got to go back, right? But um, progress in philosophy is not about making there be less philosophy that has to be done. Uh, it's, it's about making it the case that the people who are philosophizing in the future can do it better. In some way, there's more philosophy to be done the more philosophical progress we make. And so I disagree with you about how human beings haven't gotten better over the past couple thousand years. I think they have gotten better and they've gotten more virtuous and it's because of philosophy. So I think the number one, I would give the number one human achievement of all human achievements, I think is philosophical. And I think it is the, the idea of human rights that did not exist in the period that I mostly work on in the ancient world. People did not have the idea of human rights. You... You start to see glimmerings of it, I think really in the Bible, but it's not really fully, I would say it's fully articulated in the enlightenment by someone like Kant, the idea of human dignity. I think nowadays, most human beings in the world just operate with this idea as almost like just written into their basic ethical framework of the way of thinking about conceptualizing the world, dealing with people around them, is that people have, everyone has a kind of dignity uh, and a kind of innate worth uh, and that they have to be treated with respect. Uh, I think that's a genuine change in human beings. It's a conceptual change and an ethical improvement that is because of philosophy.
0: Let me try a different approach to that. It's a great argument. I love it. It might, might even be true. <laughs> I might even agree with it. But a, a different perspective would be that that glimmering in, in the Bible you mentioned, the obvious place to start is uh, – that human beings are created in the image of God, which is Mm -hmm. a statement about our equality, a statement about our rights. Um, Famously, uh, Abraham argues with God about Mm -hmm. uh, his destruction of of Sodom and Gomorrah, saying, you know, if there are ten righteous people, surely they don't deserve to die. So there there are glimmerings of what we might – I'd say more than glimmerings. I'm going to be a little stronger. There are examples of what we might think of as justice – if you're so inclined social justice not so inclined but you could argue that and that then you ask well okay that that text was instrumental to the evolution of of western civilization uh, in certain parts of the world and yes it it may have flourished most fully in the enlightenment but you could argue that it was economics that drove that appreciation for those arguments. I won't say the field of economics, so you can make that argument too. I won't. But you could argue that it was the end of subsistence for most Mm -hmm. people, the growth of the potential for for economic growth that allowed people to indulge finally their taste uh, or yearning, if I can make it a little more poetic, their yearning for being treated with dignity. And without that, uh, Kant's just a book on a shelf. What are your thoughts?
1: I think it's probably true. I think that um, philosophical ideas require all sorts of empirical conditions to, like, take hold and get themselves fully appreciated. Um, and, um, you know, I mean, if you, like, like, in Genesis, right, you have this idea in the very beginning that human beings are created in the image of God – but there's some way in which humans have to learn that and they don't learn it right away, right? And there's this amazing moment when um, Cain kills Abel and God says, I hear, don't you hear the blood of your brother crying? He's crying to me from the ground, right? And God is like surprised that, Cain does not hear it. Right. It's almost like God has to learn that human beings do not just have this moral sensibility that's just like built in, even though they're made in the image of God, there's this learning that they have to do. Right. And, you know, Genesis tells some of the story of that learning. Um, And um, so I think that that what you're what you're pointing to is that there are sort of empirical conditions on this learnings taking place. Uh, And I think that that's
0: true. And then the other part uh, that I disagree with potentially uh, with your thumbnail of human progress Mm -hmm. is uh, just like in economics, there's a temptation to point to the good parts of economics. Like I could point out that when Adam Smith talked about the virtues of commercial life, that it encourages empathy or that Mm -hmm. trade uh, through specialization is great for um, improving our standard of living and divisional labor – it's easy to leave out the parts that maybe are not so cheerful. So one I would worry about in philosophy is um, utilitarianism, which is embedded, I think, like fish are embedded in water. I think it's really hard for modern human beings to avoid utilitarian calculus. Um, So you point out we sort of absorb this idea of equal rights uh, and human dignity. I think we've also absorbed this idea of, of of a calculus of, societal well-being. And I don't think it's a very, obviously people disagree, but I I think that can be a very destructive impulse that philosophy has given us through Bentham uh, Mill, and uh, I think through its application in economics with with not enough care.
1: Yeah, I agree. I actually think that's true of many philosophical ideas that have a kind of reductive bent right so there's there's quite a lot of philosophical theorizing that it is that is an attempt to unify everything under one principle and there's a very good motivation for that that is what knowledge is um like knowledge is holding the many together under one right but you have to do that in a way that doesn't do violence to the differentiation within the many so that's a very abstract answer now about utilitarianism in particular um, I think that we still that there's a there's a kind of road to utilitarianism f- almost from first principles right which is of course you want to do the best thing whatever the best thing is right yeah. you always there's a truism there you should do the best thing right and the best thing is the thing that brings about the most good right and Everything that's good is going to be something that happens in the world, right? And so you want the most good happenings, right? So like that, that kind of argument gets you to utilitarianism pretty quickly. And I think we haven't yet figured out exactly how to arrest that argument, if you see what I mean.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: and so I, that's something I take it that we're still working on. And when we're still working on an idea, the sign of that is that there are all kinds of bad applications of the idea. We're still thinking. We're still figuring that out.
0: Yeah, the most good is uh, – who could argue with that, right? Except when exactly. it's applied by, say, Stalin or Hitler. Um, you know, it's in, there's an interesting tension between what's best for individuals and what's best for, quote, society at large. And I think we have that reductive impulse. I know we have it in economics. I used to have it. I've rebelled against it. This idea of saying, you know, it's just it's just unfortunate that this policy or this change – Helps some people and hurts others. So uh, that's too complicated. I want to, like you say, I want to unify that. Let's, let's just take the dollar value of the harm and the dollar value of the benefits, and just add them up and see which is bigger. And if it's bigger, th- if it's positive, it's a good thing. It's that that creates the most good. If it's negative, it creates the least. That's not good. And I find that reductive, uh, you know, social welfare economics. Uh, it's also it's implicit in in, in in the worst excesses of communism, fascism, Nazism. I'm not suggesting economists or fascists or Nazis, but I think that human impulse to simplify, to reduce a complex system to what a math is, a scalar, a single number. Oh, it's positive. It's above zero. That's good. I think it's to be resisted.
1: So the thing is that um, the question is the alternative. (laughs) Like if you want to resist it, what do you want to do instead? Fair enough. So a lot of the time, we have to make some kind of a choice, right? And what uh, people want to make those choices in ways that are in some sense principled. And I think that utilitarianism, utilitarianism gives you one principle. It gives you a principle for making choices. Now, I don't think it's the only principle. So the, you know, Kantianism is another principle. It's like, you could have rules, right? You could make your choices in accordance with moral rules, such as I'm never going to intentionally, um, like cause the loss of life or something like that, right? Where you then always have the option of doing nothing, though that may end up resulting in a lot more loss of life, but you didn't intentionally cause it, right? So so there are other kinds of principles that you might choose other than utilitarianism, or you might decide to be unprincipled, right? Um, But those are your options. And so that's sort of what I mean by saying we're still figuring this out, is that um, I think that we... We want there to be some principle underlying these choices, Um, but if we jump too quickly to a commitment to a particular principle, it's going to lead us to terrible consequences. The terrible consequences are simply the sign that we picked the wrong principle or an insufficiently complex principle.
0: I think yeah, you could argue that the alternative to having a system is to go case by case, and I'm not going to have a set of rules. I'm not going to have an overarching calculate reductive calculus like utilitarianism they look at each case of course there the risk is that you do what is convenient what is good for you you wrap it up in other motives to make yourself feel good about it um i think partly what we're and you sa-
1: can't justify it to others say that again and you might not be able to justify it to others and to get other people to agree with you to pursue that plan of action
0: yeah, I might not be able to, but I might be really good at figuring out ways to make them think it might be good for them, too, and not just good for me. And, sure. Right? Yeah. That, that's the, the the challenge there. I think the, in a way, and I, I've been thinking about this for a while now, I'm trying to write a book on it, the, the whole idea of the scientific enterprise, which has worked so well in certain areas, uh, doesn't work so well in others. So then you're left with, well, now what? If if I can't use analytical technique and data to figure out, say, uh, what career I should go into, or whether I should marry, or who I should marry, or whether I should have children, or whether the minimum wage is a good thing, you name it, right? Because I, I think all of those have very are very different than how many transistors you put on a integrated circuit, which is an engineering mm-hmm. problem. Uh, those other problems are are different to me, and and then the question is if you if you reject the uh scientific enterprise as the way to quote solve those problems if you start to grapple with the idea that they're quote not solvable even they are uh different kinds of experiences that that one has to endure or grope or cope with or grapple with the, the original question is okay now what do i just flip a coin do i right
1: Right. And so what I want to say is that it's important not to conflate the idea of a problem's being solvable with the idea that it can be solved by someone other than you. So in some way, the scientific approach, that's the thing I was saying earlier about saying that there's the sense of progress there is a sense of completing a line of thought so that it no longer needs to be thought about. So it's almost like we delegate the thinking. So when scientists say we, what they mean is other scientists, right? (laughs) Um, And so the idea is like you you can delegate a bunch of your thinking to other people and then you don't have to do that work. They've done it for you. So you can look up You know, like the idea that social science could tell you who to marry, right? Be like you'd somehow look it up, or there'd be an app, or whatever, and it would just pop up. And then that would the problem would be solved for you by other people. But I don't think the problem who to marry is an unsolvable problem. I think I've solved it. In fact, I solved it twice. (laughs) Yeah, well done. (laughs) So, (laughs) as
0: as Mark Twain said, it's easy to stop smoking. I've done it a score of times.
1: Yeah. Right. Um, I think obviously we all have to solve that problem. Uh, and we know, I don't know anyone who solves it by flipping a coin, right? We solve it through like agonizing decision-making and trial and error. And, um, you know, and we don't solve it alone. We tend to solve it with the person that we end up marrying. Right. It's not, that's also, I think an important feature of this is that there's a little bit of the illusion that all of a solipsistic situation, which I'm sitting here figuring out who to marry all on my own. Right. I'm not doing that. Um, so I think that there are a lot of problems that are solvable, but you actually yourself have to do the work of
0: solving them. And we don't just, of course, solve that with the other person. We're thinking of marrying. We solve them through our friends. We watch our potential Absolutely. spouse interact with our friends or family, and we gain intangible, non-scientific data. What I would call it, what I would call information uh, or knowledge, even though it's not quantifiable. Um, but you know what you say reminds me. I, I, when you talk about the expertise and delegating to others, one way to think about the death of expertise, which is a uh, something I think about a lot these days, is the media, to my view, falls apart, um, literally falls apart as a source of of knowledge for, for so many people. Uh, you know, part of what maybe is happening is, you know, some of it's the the decentralization of, of media and the atomization of of knowledge through the internet, the ability of people to inform themselves, not rely on experts. But I think part of the problem is that so many of the things we care about uh, are difficult problems, not easily quantified. There isn't a consensus, but we want there to be. So people look for um, load stars, people they can they can quote trust. And you know, my view is on most things, you can't trust anyone. Uh, there isn 't a consensus, so just you 're going to have to live with it
1: that 's true, but there's the other poll there, which is um, there are people who really not only love uncertainty but almost seem to drown, bathe in it, glory in it um, to the point of sort of despair like um i mean that is there 's a certain road to skepticism right where it 's like you oh, nothing is really knowable, no point to even try
0: <laughs> um, yeah
1: and Um, I don't know. I see that sometimes, you know, like, like when you were saying to me, oh, there are no answers, like philosophy or whatever. Like, I I really hope there are answers because I'm trying to find them. And I think that, um, you know, I I don't want to give up on certainty as a goal. Uh, I, I, I don't want the illusion, the false belief that I have, you know, the false certainty in something that I shouldn't be certain about, but, um, in some way the People's clinging to certainty and their and their um, even clinging to authority is a sign that they love knowledge, right? That they're not satisfied just being at sea in the world around them. And you shouldn't be satisfied being at sea in the world around you.
0: I enjoy. I really enjoy agnosticism uh, as a as a um, stance. And I think you know, there's a little bit of nuance here. It's not agnosticism. Well, who knows? <laughs> it's well. We know some things. Um, the way I like to think about it is, you know, the, the drunk looks for the keys under the lamppost because that's where the light's the brightest. That's our human impulse. We It's very hard to avoid that impulse. But the shadows are where a lot of things are happening. We just, we're uncomfortable remembering that. So we we forget it. We tend to look where the light is. Right,
1: you still, but but even in the shadows, like, you still got to be searching (laughs) rather than – and and I guess I think finding is the logical target of searching. Like what you're doing isn't searching if you think there's no such thing that – like if you think there are no keys.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's true.
1: Then there's nothing for you to do in the shadows.
0: I'm older than you. I'm 65. Um, I feel wiser than I was 20 years ago. It might be an illusion, but I do feel I've made some progress. Uh, But I have to confess a lot of that progress is in – Appreciate what I don't know. So that's not really that helpful, maybe.
1: <laughs> so here's another way to think about it. Um, um, there are, suppose there are answers. This is what Socrates thought, okay? There are answers. Like all of the questions that we, that we ask ourselves have definitive answers where if you knew them, you would know that you knew them. And he says, if you knew them, you would be like a living person walking among the shadows in Hades. You would be so different from other people. It would be incredible to know that okay, here's the but, it's not achievable in a human lifetime, maybe not in many lifetimes, maybe if you were reincarnated thousands of times, um, uh, maybe then, maybe. Okay. So suppose you had that view, right? So the view is that there really are these answers, that they would be incredible, incredibly valuable, that having them would really be the only thing that would make your life sort of fundamentally worth living, but you're not going to get them over the course of your life. Do you still try to get them? Do you still work to get them? You might think that that just it would be impossible, would be impossible to motivate yourself right under those situations. So maybe you tell yourself a different story, like a story about how it's all about the search, and like the searching, live in the live in the search, and 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 that's um, that's actually valuable. And that that story, that pretense that you told yourself, is how you get yourself to do this impossible thing, which is searching for something that you maybe can't get within your lifetime.
0: Well, I find that incredibly poignant. Um tragic. Um it really captures to me a lot of what is the essence of of the human the human experience, which is we're in the darkness, we we grope toward truth. Occasionally we think we're close to it or maybe even think we found it. And sometimes we do get a taste of it. There, there's no doubt about that. We've there's lots of there are many areas of human life that are like that. Um but it's clear to me that you do need a lifetime to be a great parent. <laughs> Excuse yeah. me, mul- multiple lifetimes, I'm sorry. Multiple lifetimes yeah. to be a great parent because you've, you make so many mistakes, um, and they become clear in hindsight. And it's hard. Some people have the opportunity to start over and get a second set of young children to practice on. <laughs> but most of us just do the best we can that one set of times. with the, Unfortunately, the children are all different. It seems like a cruel <laughs> trick. <laughs> what works with one doesn't work with the next. Each one's unique. Uh, even then, when they're your own, with the same shared genetic makeup with your spouse, it doesn't get it that much easier because they're all another draw from the urn. Um, but I think that that uh, telling yourself that the search is 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 part of the you know you do the best you can, even though you know it's a it's a you're uh, you're really uh, Sisyphus. You're rolling the rock to the top of the hill, and you never get there.
1: I mean, the, the thing about parenting is that you're kind of learning how to parent your kids as you parent them, but then they're changing at the same time. So Heisenberg just always a step ahead of you.
0: Heisenberg uncertainty principle in action there, sort of.
1: <laughs> right, and the, and they're they're like what you've learned is always useful just at the moment at which it becomes useless. Like you've, you've figured out the kid and then they slightly change, right? Yeah. So uh, it's like this, this process of being like always one step behind. And I don't know. I don't think it would help if you started out with a second set of kids. Like I haven't noticed that people are sort of much better with their grandkids.
0: That's a great worse, point. Actually. Well, yeah, different set of incentives there. But I guess the part of it's like the, um, the idea that we're going to master the business cycle As economic policymakers, we just need more data. We just need a few more – give us a few more recessions, a few more depressions, and we'll get the hang of it. But in fact, each one's a little bit different. You suggested there is some progress in philosophy, and yet you think we have a lot to learn from Socrates. I know you think we have something to learn from Aristotle. You specialize in the ancient Greeks. Um, Why should we do that? Why should we keep reading these people who lived long ago in a different time? Uh, before we figured so many things out. People say this about economics all the time. I don't, I don't need to read Adam Smith because anything that was true in Adam Smith, we've kept and everything else is false. So I don't need to read Adam Smith. Um, I suspect, I don't feel that way, but uh, I don't feel, I suspect you don't feel that way about Aristotle either.
1: Yeah, or I, or I don't feel about Adam Smith either. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, I think, um, um, I think that what um the way philosophy one way philosophy creates progress it doesn't itself make progress in it, but it sort of creates it is that there are sort of um there's like a mush of how people think about the world and philosophers divide it up and articulate it and create like a structure, right? And then that structure sort of trickles down and just becomes the how people think about things unreflectively right so you could think of it as like your conceptual architecture so in the ancient world people puzzled over like how there can be a thing like a chair but it can be yellow so really there are two things there a chair and yellow but how can there be two things that are one thing Okay. Now for us, we're like, we can't even see the problem because we're like, right. well, it's a chair, but it has a property, a property <laughs> of being yellow. And so when we say it is a chair, when we say it is yellow, we're using the word is in two different ways. The is of, um, you know, predication and like, like the is of essence or something. Right. Yeah. But all of that is Aristotle. Aristotle came up with that, right? We're just being Aristotelians, but we don't notice it because Aristotle created the basic categories. In fact, he called them the categories in which we think about things. And so, you know, why should you study Aristotle? Well, maybe, maybe you don't care why you think about things the way you do. But one thing is you might you might worry, as you worry about utilitarianism, that some of the categories that we've absorbed from philosophers, that some of the basic sort of our basic conceptual architecture might not be quite right. Uh, And we, or even if you think it is right, you want to take a kind of ownership of it, right? Um, You want it to be your own thinking. And I think what studying ancient philosophy allows you to do is to have your thinking be more your own thinking than it was before, because you can sort of See it coming into being in some sense. And then some of it is the like questions, you know, like with Adam Smith. I just remember I was reading him this summer, and there's this passage where he talks about how human beings have this very basic desire to be believed, to persuade others. Like, that's the primary function of language, in a sense, is to be a leader, to be a thought leader. He thought of language as satisfying this desire to be a thought leader of others. And so it's this deep and interesting a, asymmetry that then structures communication for Smith, um, where like, w- like what you get there is some of the some of the story behind why there are these um, status tensions among human beings and why there's this zero-sum game aspect to the human experience, um, which has to sit alongside of the kind of very positive picture in like wealth of nations where it's like oh we just get together and work together and everyone everyone's improved it's a po- trade is a positive sum game right yep. so for me something i look to ad- i, I want to read adam smith to f- to understand this deep tension between the zero sum and the positive sum elements of like human interaction
0: well i think the mistake people make when they make those kind of statements um it's the same mistake they make uh, to me when they say uh, in a book, say, talking about Nassim Nicholas Taleb's book, Fooled by Randomist, people say, oh, I already knew all that. Uh, and my view is uh, I, I knew a lot of it, but the way he wrote about it made me understand it more fully. The way he wrote about it helped me internalize it and absorb it and feel it in my bones. And things that are facts and equations or, or theorems or punchlines are not the same as knowledge, Right. Having a set of definitions, even if they're accurate, which is not always easy, it's not the same as understanding things. And I think that's what's lost uh, when we ignore great thinkers of the past.
1: Yeah, I th- that seems right to me that there's a way in which the thing we understand least is our own ideas. <laughs> and so we might have them like they might be ours in a sense. Right. But um, we- we're we're often just saying words without really knowing what we mean by those words. And I think when we talk about things, having properties, like, like unless you can really get a grip on that problem of the two ways to use the word is there, like it's just, it's not at all obvious that it's okay to use the word is in those two different ways. Like it doesn't, you know, the word is, is not ambiguous. It's not like river bank and money bank. Right. So that's a deep problem. And like, if you just like, Oh, well, it's a a chair and it's yellow right there. What you, you think you have the thought (laughs) in a way, but you haven't seen to the bottom of your own thought. Um, And so the thought that like, I won't get anything new. It's like, in a way that's true. You won't get anything new. What you'll get is something old that's in your head, but that you haven't sort of come to grips with.
0: I guess the other question is how much of what we – how we think about things, the framework we use, how much of it is culturally transmitted, and then we use the words of philosophers and economists and others to explain those or whether the philosophers and economists are actually propagating those ideas. I'm thinking about – Recent book I read by Joshua Berman. He's talking about that the Hammurabi Code, which details the punishments for various infractions, theft, building a building that doesn't stand up. Speaking of Talib, he loves to quote this that if you build a building that doesn't stand up and it kills somebody, you're killed as the builder, and that it produces skin in the game. Berman argues that that's not the way the Hammurabi Code. I don't know if this is good good scholarship or not, but he, he claims that Hammurabi Code was not enforced that way. It was not – it actually wasn't a law code. It was common law. It was a set of the standing of of certain – it was a summary of of certain cases and punishments or consequences at the time and that no one expected them to be enforced literally like we would with a code. It was rather a, uh, a collection of past cases or cases at the time I mean, that's just extraordinarily fascinating because it totally changes the way you think about it. But more importantly, for me, it reminds you that you look at the past, and we all look to history, and even if it's a week ago, we look at the past through today's eyes and don't appreciate how much of our vision is affected by the glasses we wear. Those glasses come from this water we're in, this intellectual water that we don't remember is out there. We just assume we're thinking of this rationally as, you know, out of the blue. But in fact, we are we have absorbed either the philosophy that created the culture or the culture that adapted the philosophy to its needs. And I think that's a um a really wonderful and important enterprise if you got the time. I know it's not doesn't <laughs> I understand it's not everybody's cup of tea.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I mean we want. It's in some way, we want some way to hold on to the wisdom that we haven't fully gotten to the bottom of. (laughs) Um, And so we might have, like, a lot more thoughts than what we can fully articulate at a given time. And that's part of what a code is about. Or it's part of what a lot of, like, you know, a lot of our values exist because we have institutions that transmit them, right? Yeah. Um, even something like marriage or universities, or yeah. um, and human beings wouldn't be very good at like having much in their lives if we didn't have those institutions. Like we wouldn't come up with a lot of value sort of immediately, you know, on our own. Um, and so there's the the process of tradition. I I agree with you. It has to in some way. It like outstrips the theorizing of it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, because it gets into the world. <laughs> it gets out of the lab. It's like a Frankenstein. We hope it's a good one, right? But the point about institutions is a deep point. I I think about Adam Ferguson, who said, uh, talked about things that were the result of human action but not human design. And that's one way to think about institutions, the things that emerge out of human interactions that are not planned by anyone. Uh, universities are a great example, and you and I are both molded by them in ways we probably don't fully appreciate, and they're changing dramatically right now, uh, I think, in what yeah. their purpose – it's been – it's not right now. It's its the last 30, 40 years or so. They're not what they were 100 years ago, let's say it that way. Uh, they're doing something different, and for people who conceived of them as they were in the past, it's alarming and – incredibly destabilizing intellectually and emotionally but it's clear to me that it's just just another phase and it's um you have to react accordingly
1: yeah i mean i i'm i'm so curious like actually one of the reasons why i wish i could live another 200 years is i really want to see what will (laughs) what universities will look like in 200 years because like there's just this way in which part of the justification of a university has always been that like um, um, most people aren't into that stuff right. <laughs> and can't access it. Right. And uh, that it's, still elitist. it's elitist,
0: true.
1: right. It, it's elitist. And there still may be some truth in that, but there's just a lot less truth in it. I mean, just, you know, literacy rates going up a lot, right. The fact that, that, that in the United States, you know, I don't know, 30%, something like that. People go to college higher than that, oh, uh, yeah. you know, four year colleges, um, uh, uh, you know, compared to 50 years ago, right, so what that means is that there's a lot more um, uh, intellectual interest in the general population than there used to be, so the differential between inside and outside the university is just lower than it's ever been, right, and the internet is a huge part of that too, and so this question of, like, what does it mean for there to be an institution that is the safeguard of this thing that, like, most people don't care about, is just, it's, that's less true, plus, at the same time, the increase in attendance at universities has meant that universities now play this weird sort of gatekeeping role in terms of like your future, you know, status and life prospects and earnings and all of that, that like, wasn't what they were intended to. It means they're much more integrated into the society than they ever used to be. So that's just super interesting that universities have, are stopping being sort of like a world apart. And yeah, I agree with you. I wish I could see ahead to see what will happen with that.
0: I think the other part of it, of course, is that they're not just for education, and you could argue they're not even close to being mainly about education. They're a form of, to pick a very a less elitist word, they're a form of finishing school. I can make that sound good by saying it's where people figure out who they are and explore their identity, and so that there's, that's an intellectual enterprise in some sense or a philosophical enterprise. But if you think about them as a finishing school and that there's we're richer so we can afford more people to get finished, uh, although not as many graduates start, unfortunately, or just the way it is, um, I think that changes the whole enterprise. So you think about your role as a professor in the humanities, I was a professor of economics, we saw ourselves as as people who shared wisdom. Okay, sure, we were... It's a pretentious sounding thing, but that, that was, we saw that was our goal. That was our job. We step, at least that's what I saw my job as being. And I don't think that's really as important as an intellectual enterprise in the modern university as it was 40, 50 years ago. It's just not.
1: What do you think uh, in a, fin- what is a finishing school? Can you just say more about like, what, yeah, that,
0: it's like um, what that,
1: what does it accomplish?
0: So if you think about a gap year. It's where you, quote, mm-hmm. find yourself, you explore something, you learn about what you care about. And that's kind of what college is, except it's four years, unbelievably expensive, not just the tuition, but the foregone earnings and opportunities to learn and explore your things differently, in a different way. Mm-hmm. And COVID, you know, this COVID thing with Zoom classes is is reminding people that in a really dramatic way, yeah, this isn't what I pay $75,000 for, uh, is to get my kids to learn a bunch of stuff online? I mean, I could watch YouTube videos. Why am I paying? I mean, just for the certificate? Just for the signal, I'm paying 70? And, of course, some people, Brian Kaplan, former Econ Talk guest, believes that that's the the case. Um, excuse me, past Econ Talk guest. But I, it forces you to realize that, yeah, that's not really the a lot of the enterprise. A lot of the enterprise is, is something else. And that something else is growing up, right? Mm-hmm. Our Our You know, age of marriage is pushed off in America now to a, the average keeps climbing. It's it's college just another form of, you know, it used to be some people went to finished high school. Most people didn't. And then it was some people went to college, but most people didn't. We're increasingly going to where, you know, I really need 16 years, not so much of education, but 16 years of not being responsible for myself. It's a really mm-hmm. ugly way to put it, but that's another way to think of it as finishing school. It's not like um, you're going to learn your manners there or how to do, uh, you know, which silverware to use at which part of the meal. But rather, I'm not ready yet to grow up. And I don't mean that in a, neg- mm-hmm. in a condescending way. I'm not ready to start my independent existence. And I've, we have a society have created this weird bubble called college where a lot of people can go and, Throw out a bunch of stuff. Some of it's intellectual, some of it's career, some of it's social, some of its identity. It's all it's all complicated and mixed up in that. And that's that's what I think of it as.
1: Yeah, so that makes sense to me. And you could, I mean, you could equally well of, call, of course call it starting school, right? Yeah, better. And I recently asked someone, you know, who um, an economist who. I went to the University of Chicago, uh, he was one year ahead of me, and we took some of the same classes, not together, but sequentially, and I said, what do you, you know, what do you feel you learned from having been a U- Chicago undergrad, you know, 20 years ago, and what he basically said was that he felt like it was his induction into intellectual culture, and he was a yeah. child of academics, yeah. okay, a child of university professors, and I, I was not, um, and, but I felt exactly the same that, like, I didn't know that this world existed. I didn't know as a high school student, really, even I read philosophy as a high school student. Yeah, still. it doesn't matter. I, I didn't know that you could be in this space in which you talk to other people about ideas. And I think, I, I don't think that's the only thing college is about, but I think that if you start your life, um, having discovered that, let's say, (laughs) um, that's going to be a different life than the life in which you never discovered that, right? You'll start a different life. (laughs) Um, So I guess I would say ideally would be a starting school of that kind. And I agree with you that that's not primarily about transmitting knowledge or transmitting wisdom or transmitting information to students. It's about sort of showing them that a certain kind of community exists that will support their um, inquiry.
0: And to trivialize it a little bit, I I think it's really showing you how to read (laughs) uh, and how to think. I, I think that's the ideal of a certain kind of college experience. The more pragmatic side of college, majoring in, say, I won't pick on any particular fields, but there are certain fields that I don't feel capture that. And that people in those fields are having a different experience. They're not exactly getting that beautiful thing that you described that isn't for everybody anyway.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, if you have a university where there is uh, like a core curriculum that everyone has to take, that, that's the very idea of the core curriculum is to make it not be a question of your major, whether or not you're inducted into that kind of intellectual community, right? Um, and so, but not every university does, right? And so, yes, I think it's, it's certainly possible to sort of not have that. Um, and and for, for it to be the case that your university experience isn't really about learning how to read, right? Right. Yeah. Um, though I would say about learning how to read, I really do think I agree with you. I think you 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 do learn how to read in college, but that for me, what that means is you sort of learn how to socialize with dead people. So that's sort of what reading is. It's like, it's it's to learn that reading is that. That reading is a form of interaction that you can interact with people who've been dead for a long time. It's just hard to do. And that that's what the reading experience is. The reading experience isn't passing your eyes over something and then writing a paper about it, that there's a form of socializing, which is a form of intellectual life that's possible in that context. And for me, that was like a radical discovery.
0: So I've never read much Aristotle. I guess the answer might be none. And I haven't read a lot of Plato. I've read a little bit of Plato. Shame on me. Um, But if I were a student in your class, um, well, let me say it first, if I picked up those works, and I started to read them, I'd struggle, and I, I, I could socialize a little bit with dead people, but not so much. How do you see your role as a teacher in facilitating that conversation between uh, students and those who are long gone?
1: Yeah, so I think that's, that really is my job as a I te- I agree with you. It's very hard to do on one's own, uh, and people often ask me, like, what should I start with in Plato or Aristotle? What should I read? And I'm like, the first thing you should do is find a group of people to read it with. (laughs) That's step one and read whatever they want to read, which is that's not quite I I then would have views about. I think you should start with Plato rather than Aristotle. I think you should start with certain dialogues rather than others. Aristotle is very hard because he's so boring (coughs) to read Uh, (laughs) and there's no getting around that. And that's really different from Plato, who's really not boring to read. Um, And so the nice thing about Plato is you can sort of get into it without really getting anywhere close to the bottom of it, you can sort of stay on the surface of it and get something. You know, is Socrates being a jerk here or does he have a point against Euthyphro? Um, You know, is Euthyphro a conservative or a radical? So You have these conversations about like these people, there are people who are talking to each other, who are arguing with each other. And I think what you have to do is get the students to be invested, you know, that thing skin in the game. You sort of get them invested in this argument. Whose side are you on? Who do you agree with? what would you say if he said this to you? And it's incredibly easy to do that with platonic dialogue. Students do it almost without trying. They they actually read the dialogue and they just assume that their job is to figure out which side that they're, they're on, right? So you don't have to persuade them to do it. And then you just have to get them to see that they can just keep do, doing the thing. The thing that was in the dialogue is something they can do too, right? And that it becomes an extension, the classroom very easily becomes an extension of what's happening in the text. That's much harder if you're reading Aristotle, it's harder if, harder if you're reading Descartes or Kant, uh, it's quite hard if you're reading Nietzsche, right? But you can do it, that's what you have to do with all of them, it's just easiest to do with Plato.
0: Can you do it with Heidegger?
1: No, I can't. I so can't I either. No, I don't even, <laughs>
0: um, nah, anyway, um, so that's a beautiful, beautiful idea, you know, as a host of a podcast that interviews one other person, almost Once a week, uh, I have this romantic ideal that conversation is the way we learn. And I'm curious, those Platonic dialogues, obviously, that's what Plato thought that was important. I'm curious what your experience is as a teacher in watching your students learn through the process of talking about people talking.
1: Yeah, so one thing that was funny to me when you were saying, like, you saw your job as sort of transmitting wisdom is like, I really don't see that as my job, I see it as acquiring wisdom.
0: Yeah. And, true. Fair enough. Um, Better I'm said.
1: sort of sneakily using that my, my students <laughs> to acquire wisdom. So like, I just have all these questions. I come to class with a bunch of questions. I found that class works best. My list of questions is just a list of things that I genuinely want to know about the text or about the phenomena, um, that the text is about. Right. And, um, and I think I do actually, this is just the point in which I substantively philosophically agree with Socrates, though possibly not with Plato. I actually think Plato might have had a slightly different view, but with Socrates, which is that, yes, conversation, philosophy in some sense essentially proceeds by way of conversation. And that's because um, one mind by itself um, sort of can't see around its own biases, prejudices, and assumptions. Um, and as much as we try to step back and reflect and be meta-rational. All of those procedures are governed by the same biases and assumptions, right? And so you actually need someone else to ask you the very simple question that you just didn't ask yourself because it was in your blind spot. Yeah. And that's what learning is. And so that's what I'm doing in class is learning uh, from my students um, by posing to them these questions. And then they give me answers and I tell them why that answer isn't good enough and why I still have a problem here. And um, we go back and forth. And that's what I think learning is.
0: You could argue that the reason you learn, you read dead people's works, is to step outside that modern mindset that you're unaware of that water that you're swimming in, and it forces you to to rethink where you're coming from. Maybe I don't know.
1: I do think that there is that aspect of it. I think that though that if I were going to do that, I would read more philosophical works that are outside of my own tradition than I do.
0: Yeah, fair enough. So Good I'm point. pretty
1: narrow, like uh, uh, and. Uh, I find it hard to get things, like, uh, out of such works, and I find it hard to read them. And I think it's mostly just that I don't have a community of people to do it with. And I'm, I'm even talking some some authors within my tradition, like Plotinus. I've tried to read Plotinus, and he's so important. I just don't – he somehow thinks about the world in a way that's really different from me. I don't get anything out of him. Spell I'm it. It's like whatever. Who? P-L-O-T-I-N-U-S. Plotinus. It's like. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yes. <laughs> so it's Plotinus, yeah, so, we think? Okay. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I, um, that makes it sound like I mean, real you know I don't I don't know who Plotinus is either. So I I I should pretend that I do, but it was just pronounced funny for me. When, who was Plotinus? Tell us. Plotinus, so, sorry. <laughs>
1: um so he, you know, he's sort of um they, he's this important Hellenistic philosopher. I don't know that much about him because as I said, Yeah, why he, bother? Get that much from him, but <laughs> but um you know he's living in like um you know roughly like 200 AD something like that and he um he was this neoplatonist who was sort of reviving plato right um and he wrote these this text called the enneads in which essentially he's like trying to explain how everything is organized under the one <laughs> um, um and uh like this kind of uh, it, you know, in some sense you might say very very radically reductive philosophy reduction is the wrong word because it's such a heavily metaphysical reduction that um, that you wouldn't recognize it as such and it's it's like it's like heavy duty metaphysics that is ta- taking its inspiration from plato but in ways that i find just very alien so i, I, I kind of never know what question he's trying to answer
0: yeah
1: um hmm. Uh, Anyway, (laughs) you should probably talk to someone else about Plotinus other than me, someone who gets something out of them.
0: A Plotinusian. They're everywhere. Uh, A Plotinusist. Um, Let's close and talk about uh, virtue. Uh, And We talk about the theory of moral sentiments here on the program quite a bit um, and our natural tendency towards self-interest, not selfishness, but self-interest and how it can be overcome at various times and in various ways. Um thinking about your comment earlier that that quote we're better than we were uh do you see religion and philosophy as being I hate to say it use this word but competitors in that I think some of philosophy is trying to get at how can we be good without god how can we motivate people to seek um goodness and virtue uh, without an external reward or say heaven and hell without the um, you, can, you can make it more positive than that it's not so much about sticks and carrots but more about aspiration toward toward greatness and and transcendence do you see that there's some of am I right or wrong in thinking about philosophy that way and and can we can we make progress just through philosophy on, on that side of virtue search for virtue
1: so one thing you're definitely right about is that most philosophers are not religious and um in fact recently someone on twitter said like is it like is it bias if i respect a philosopher less if i learn that they believe in god
0: i saw that Um, yeah
1: (laughs) and i wrote like I'm a philosopher who believes in God and I would view that as bias if you don't listen to my arguments for that reason, right? Like you should, you know, And the first premise of, of my argument isn't God exists. So, um, so, so I think sociologically that's right. I think that, um, you know, historically of course it hasn't been right. Most philosophers have been religious. Um, um, I think that, um, so I have some idiosyncratic religious views, um, but maybe, maybe, maybe the first thing I would say is that I think religion involves thinking about God through images and myths and stories. And, um, you know, like the human image is the most fundamental one. Like it's all, it's true. Like we say, man is made in the image of God, but we also represent God through the image of man. Right. Um, Michelangelo did for sure. Michelangelo (laughs) did, um, you know, Christians do in a variety of ways, but, I'm a Jew, and I still, in some sense, when I think of God, it's very hard for me. Like, what am I going to do? Think of a ball of light? Is that better than a human being? (laughs) I don't think it's better. I don't think it's an improvement. Um, And so there's this way in which what religion does is it tries to give us a grip on God that is imagistic and mythical and like- Stories And I think philosophy is dealing with a lot of the same territory. And what I meant by saying I'm idiosyncratic is that I think in some sense everyone believes in God. So that, that's an idiosyncratic view, yes, but I think is. they don't call it that. Um, so like I think the scientist who is so certain that the universe has laws and that there's a law-like structure under it that is there to be known, who's certain of that, who goes into it with like what I would call faith, right? Yeah that is a kind of religious belief. Not every view about God sees God as, for instance, the creator of Aristotle's God, wasn't a creator God, right? So the idea of God as creating, I view as part of the imagistic or mythic picture of God. I I think of that as being incredibly useful. It's a little bit like the thing you were saying about traditions or the Hammurabi code. Religions are religion is some of the way that we hold on to um, the thoughts about God that we haven't processed yet. And, now, where that will be going in terms of progress, you know, will philosophy eventually sort of take up all of what was event- what was once imagistically presented and presented in a more articulate and rational way? Will it will it sort of complete that project? Like, probably not. Um, 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 but who knows? <laughs> Actually, I would say who knows. Um, but I do think that that's some of what we're doing. Like in effect, the the the, the feeling of it's a competitor is sort of right because. The scientist, instead of thinking imagistically, is thinking about the laws of the universe, right? And that's an instead of relation. Um, But I don't think it's the kind of instead of where, um, in effect, you can't, like, believe in God and be doing science or philosophy. And, in fact, I have the view that you have to believe in God. You just may not say that about yourself that you do, Um, but that you are – it's sort of like a revealed preference. You're – you're voting with your feet by um, um, by moving in this act of faith. And, and I think we just engage in acts of faith all the time. Um, and science is one example.
0: So that's, boy, that was a lot to think about there. I, I was thinking something a little narrower. I was thinking about Kant and mm-hmm. the, the categorical imperative, say, that says, mm-hmm. um, I'll butcher it, but I'll do my best, that says you should act as if when you make a choice, and a, that if everyone made the same choice, would it be a good world or a bad world? And that's a great way to live. I think it's the right way. To, it's like saying um, to give it put it in COVID terms, wear a mask. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. true, or get vaccinated. It, you know, it's true that other people can protect themselves with their own masks if you don't wear one. But the world's a lot easier if everybody wears a mask, and it'd be great if everyone felt that way. I'm assuming that's true, by the way. Scientifically, it may not be, but I think it is true. Um, and I think it's the moral thing to do to wear a mask. It's the moral thing to not um, shoplift, because if everybody shoplifted, there would be no enterprise to, even you can get away with it, it's the wrong thing to do, so don't do it. Of course, that conflicts with our own individual self-interest often. It's a classic free rider problem. Um, and I think, you could argue that progress occurs when norms evolve that make doing the right thing self-interested. This comes back to a conversation we had on Acon Talk with Dan Klein about honest income, uh, that, that virtue is about becoming accustomed or habituated to certain things that aren't your narrow self-interest, but you come to feel that they make you better off because they give you pleasure or they make you feel good about yourself or I'm not, I don't think I'm doing justice to Dan's insight. It was much deeper than that, but that's the the rough idea. And that if we could live in a world that was a little more kumbaya, it'd be a better world, right? Where I said, I always do the right thing. When I find the wallet in the street with, with, you know, no one's looking, I I don't keep it. I return it. I, I mm-hmm. don't exploit people when there are opportunities to take advantage of them, even though it's in my narrow self-interest, even if it doesn't hurt my reputation, I still don't do it because it's just the wrong thing to do. And you could we argue that the enterprise of philosophy and the enterprise of what we might call secular humanism is to replace the divine uh, idea of sin or, or things you're not supposed to do with, with this more social, cultural conscience. I don't know if that enterprise is, is real. I don't know if it's true, whether it's just, you know, romance, dangerous, but it's interesting.
1: I see. So one thing to think about, what does Kant have to say about the categorical imperative and its relationship to God? And Kant's view was that you need God. <laughs> um, and he thought he needed God for exactly the reason that you have just articulated about the virtue versus selfishness. So he thought that the idea of God was a practical postulate that people had to assume in order to be able to insist on a connection between virtue and happiness. And the idea being like, if you're virtuous, you'll be rewarded in the afterlife or something like that, right? And so he thought, um, you can't prove that God exists, um, but um, it's a kind of um, presupposition of your agency and of your commitment to being a moral person, et cetera, that you believe in God, which is somewhat close to what I think, right, about everyone believes in God. Um, and so that would be to say, like, in effect, you know, the, the thing that um, would sort of Uh, in some way underwrite a person's moral commitments for Kant, like would partly be this um, belief in a certain kind of order, right? That God represents. Um, Now you might say, yeah, but what if we just forget about that? What if we just trained people in a certain way, right? We just trained them to have these non-self-interested inclinations, And I think that might work if those people weren't very philosophical, (laughs) like, and if they didn't think about why they have these instincts, right. But like, if they started to reflect upon it, they might want some answers as to why they should do things that are good for other people, even if they have instincts that drive these new instincts, right? these new social instincts that drive them in this certain way. Uh, And I think that they are going to come upon these metaphysical questions, uh, and they're going to want to come to answers to them just like we do um and so even if we fully habituated and inculcated in these people this kind of social morality, their own inquisitive nature would um force them to ask these same questions uh to which like you know God, at least according to Kant, is part of the answer,
0: but I think also understanding. Consequences of actions, market forces—all those things that play into these kind of examples also, you know, would play a role. Uh, you know, we talk on the program sometimes about tipping in a restaurant or tipping in a hotel's um, the housekeeper who you will never—not only will you never see again, you'll never see the person at all. Uh, but I like leaving a tip; makes me feel good. I think it's a good thing to do. I encourage people to do it. I encourage people to give. At least a dollar to the person on the street, the homeless person, and to not just give them the dollar, but to talk to them and interact with them, make them feel like a human being. Um, If people felt that was, quote, the right thing to do, if that norm was out there, I think – I was going to say – actually, I'm going to say it differently. I I think in a more homogeneous society, that works pretty well. I think it's harder in a heterogeneous society. I think the the challenge is that – you know it's one thing to say we're all in this together – uh, but I think a lot of people ask even probably unconsciously who 's we <laughs> and mm-hmm. and I think that 's the challenge in larger heterogeneous democracies toward using social norms to provide behavior when when legislation doesn 't
1: yeah, good. I mean, one way that I hear a lot of even religious leaders talk about religion is as a form of community, yeah like that the important thing about religion is that it gives you a kind of ethical community. And I think that if that were true about religion, then a certain kind of social progress would replace the need for religion. But in my view, that isn't all that religion is. I think that it involves, uh, it essentially has metaphysical commitments that answer to the deep metaphysical needs that human beings have. Um, So I, my view is there would still be (laughs) even in that, even in the homogenous uh, ethically habituated society that maybe wouldn't have a need for a religious community, there still might be a need for religious ideas.
0: Let's close and talk about the humanities in general. Uh, mm-hmm. We've talked a little bit about philosophy and a little about the role of education. The humanities are, in my view, are endangered species in, in the modern university. Uh, people aren't as interested in majoring them. I have a son foolishly majoring in philosophy I don't really believe that. I think it's <laughs> glorious that he's majoring in philosophy. But a lot of people say – people ask me, and I've joked about this before on the program, They say, well, what's that good for? Oh, thinking, writing. You know, other than that, nothing. But, I, you know, a lot of people don't look at it that way. They think that majoring in the humanities is, quote, quote, a waste. It's a luxury that is not very practical. They'll also talk about how the humanities have gone off the deep end politically. Um, what are your thoughts on that And um in, in humanities in general, philosophy in particular.
1: Yeah. So, um, I I believe in the humanities. Uh, I believe. I think that majoring in philosophy in some way, you know, the description that we were giving of um, college as a finishing school or a starting school that inducts you into, among other things, intellectual culture, I think majoring in the humanities is sort of majoring in college in that way, right? Mm-hmm. It's like fully committing yourself to that. And for that exact reason, it doesn't look that practical because <laughs> you're not already starting to do the next thing that you're going to do later. And so people are like, hey, why aren't you already doing the next thing, you know? And it's like, well, I'm doing this thing now. Um And so I think there's something right about saying it isn't that practical in that sense of, you know, um, but, um, but there's something. um, So what, you know, one thing to say is, look, some things are ends in themselves. Um, There had better be some such things. Right. And part of what the humanities do is kind of um, allow you to develop the capacity to appreciate those things. The things that are into themselves and like if you can't your life is just not going to have much value in it right because you won't be able to appreciate all the valuable things and some of the most valuable things in the world are books and music and paintings and ideas and so getting a chance to like develop the capacity to appreciate those things is very useful even if it doesn't like help you make more money immediately um, uh, in terms of there were many parts to your question one of them was The humanities have gone off the deep end politically. So um, I think that, you know, there is this kind of a bit of a, like there's been a crisis in the humanities for a long time. And some of that crisis is the humanities somehow losing faith in itself. And it's almost like, um, you know, there's this question, well, do these ideas really matter? And one way they could matter is they could make a certain kind of immediate political difference that we could then see sort of um, mapped out in the world. And so I see the inclination to sort of politicize the humanities as a sign that like there's some, prob- some basic problem seeing the ideas as mattering on their own. Uh, and I, I do think that that's something that we in the humanities really have to work on. It should be like our first priority is to get in touch with the sort of intrinsic value that would not f- make us feel like we needed to do that in order for these ideas to matter. Because it is important, I think it's important also not to delve into the other extreme and to just think of the humanities as like um, like fancy expensive entertainment or something. <laughs> like these ideas matter, right? And so the the person who's politicizing them is sort of in touch with the idea that they should matter. But um, But there should be a greater variety of ways in which they can matter. And there's some way in which we have to like all convince ourselves really in, in the first instance that they do matter
0: my guest today has been Agnes Callard. Agnes thank for thanks for being part of Econ Talk.
1: It was my pleasure. Thank you.
0: This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org where you can also comment on today's podcast